Hey, it's so good to be here with you for a third morning, a third day together. I have thoroughly enjoyed this, especially some of the comments many of you have posted on Twitter with pictures, Instagram, Facebook, and commented. I do my best to get on there and interact with you if I can. So if you take pictures, especially those of you I met, tag me in it. I'd like to see the shot and get on there and interact with you. Well, you'll remember day one when I had a chance to speak, we looked at Daniel 1 where it says that Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself. He resolved morally, he resolved spiritually and intellectually. And then yesterday we looked at the intellectual piece and said if we're going to live out holiness, if we're going to stand for truth, we got to know what we believe and why, be able to answer questions and engage people lovingly and graciously. Last night when I went home, I thought, man, I would love to leave you all with more practical resources to start building up your faith. And here's something that's cool. This morning on Amazon Kindle, the book my father and I wrote together was discounted like 90%. So throw the slide up there. The timing was awesome. I didn't even know this was going to happen. That book evidence that demands a verdict. My father and I wrote that together. If you're looking for one book to help you study and read, to be able to answer questions, how I know Jesus is God, the Bible's true, Jesus rose from the grave. That book is actually on Kindle right now for $3.99. Pretty good deal. I have no idea how long it's going to last. It could be days, it could be hours. But if you take one book like that and just say, you know what, 15 or 20 minutes a day, I'm going to read it in a few weeks, in a few months, in a couple years, you will find your faith built up, ready with answers for tough people who ask. So throw it up there one more time in case you missed it, want to take a picture of it. It's up, cool discount. I would take advantage of that if you're looking for a resource. Second, for those of you who are leaders, my father and I did a course based on that book called Evidence for Faith. And I actually got a special discount code for those of you here, if you're a parent, if you're a youth pastor, and last night you found yourself challenged thinking, I got to go back and go deeper. Or even if you're a student and you think, I want to go with some of my friends and help understand why we believe what we believe. That's a six-part series my father and I did together with discussion questions, with short videos. Keep it up. Oh, there it is right behind me. It's called Evidence for Faith. And you plug that discount discount code in and you will get a significant discount. That's a couple of resources that I hope will help you. Now this morning, we're going to talk about something a little different. We're going to apply this question of truth and holiness to how we live. And I've got a question for you. I think I know the answer, but the question is this. Have you ever been hurt by somebody you deeply care about? Maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe a roommate, maybe a coach, a teacher, a brother, sister, said something or did something that just hurt inside of you. Well, I told you the first day that I loved the game of basketball. I, when I was in junior high, I determined I wanted to play college basketball. Being 5'9 and white, I knew the NBA wasn't in my future. But I thought, I want to play college basketball. And if I work my tail off, I can. I played four years at Biola. And I would practice all the time. Where I lived in the mountains, it would snow. 
So I would actually get up, even when it was snowing outside, I would be shooting, practicing in the snow, working on my game. I'd get up early in the morning after practice. I'd go unlock the door. I was supposed to lock it. Drive around and come back after my coach left and then practice basketball some more. I love the game. And in my small town, there was a man who was the best basketball player I knew. I lived in a small town in the mountains. He was probably about six foot three, 190 pounds. And I looked up to him because he was a state championship coach. And we were playing basketball one day. I went up for a lap. He came behind me, slammed me in the back against the wall. Keep in mind, he was probably 35 years old, six foot three. I was probably 16, five, eight, a buck 40. He slams me against the wall. I fell down. He looks at me. He goes, get up, you big baby. And then he takes the ball and goes the other side. Now, at that point, I should have just walked off the court and not let someone treat me that way. But I'm like some of you here. I'm so competitive that inside of me, I'm like, you're going to have to kill me before I quit. So I kept playing. He's cussing me out. He's fouling me hard, slams him against the wall. I went home that day, and I'll never forget it, because next to my dad, this is somebody I looked up to. I walked to my front door. I stopped. I walked around the steps, down steps to the right where my basketball court was. I went out there, and I sat there, and I just started to cry. I had been treated so poorly by somebody that I looked up to. And you know what? I'll tell you something. As a 16 years old, a seed of just bitterness and hurt and hatred started to build in my heart. And it wasn't until about four or five years later when I was in college, when I read the passage from the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to look together this morning, that I realized if I was going to call myself a follower of Jesus, I had to do something about this and forgive the man who treated me this way. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at a story called the parable of the unmerciful servant, or some would say the unforgiving servant. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 says this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, according to certain Jewish law, you only had to forgive somebody three times and then you were done. So Peter is saying to Jesus, how many times do I forgive? Up to seven times? Peter thinks Jesus is going to go, wow, you're willing to forgive seven times. You're so spiritual, Peter. But as always, what Jesus says is he rocks the boat and gives a surprising response. But the reality is, Peter wasn't really asking because he wanted to know. What Peter was doing is he was saying, what's the minimal amount I have to forgive and then I can be done? Kind of like, I'm actually really curious, how many of your parents make you clean your room before you can like go out with a friend or like play video games or do something you want to do? How many of your parents make you clean your room? Yeah, I suspected that is an international phenomena. I pull that one on my kids too, actually. Now, I'm guessing when your parents say to you, hey, you want to go out with your friends and do X, Y, Z? You got to clean your room. I doubt any of you say, all right, mom, where's the Windex? Where's the vacuum? I'm going to make this spotless because I love you. I know that's not how it goes down here. 
In fact, I know what you're thinking. Inside you're thinking, what's the minimum I have to do to convince my mom my room is clean? Can I get an amen for that one? Yeah, I thought so. Can I put everything in my closet underneath the bed? What's the minimum I have to do to get a passing grade to go play with my friends? This is what Peter's asking Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, what's the minimum I need to forgive somebody and then I can move on? He says, up to seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. Now you math whizzes, how much is that? 490, good. I asked some junior hires a while ago and someone goes, oh, it's 30. I was like, oh boy, you should work for the government. 490 times. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus saying that when somebody offends or hurts you, keep a record. And when somebody's at 489 times, let them know that they only have one left and they better use it well because they're almost done. Is this what Jesus means? Of course not. You know what he means? He means if you call yourself a follower of me, choose to forgive people, period. You realize that? Because I want this to sink in. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to choose to be willing to forgive people because God has first offered forgiveness to us. Friends, if you forgive somebody 490 times, trust me, you will be willing and capable to forgive the next time because you become the kind of person that God wants you to be. Well, let's take a look at this story together. We're going to read verses 23 through 25. So again, Matthew 18, 23 through 25. Jesus tells a story. It says this, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one who was brought up to him, owed him 10,000 talents and said he could not pay his master order him to be sold with his wife, his children, all that he had, and payment to be made. He was just commanded with all that he had for payment to be made to the king. Now, 10,000 talents, you know how much that is? That's actually equivalent to millions of dollars or tens of millions of pesos. Millions of dollars this servant owed the king. In other words, this was a debt so big that he was incapable of paying it back. Have you ever had a debt you owed somebody that you couldn't pay back? Have you? Have you ever been indebted to somebody for something and you didn't even have the ability to pay it back? That doesn't feel good, does it? I shared the first day that I married my high school Sweetheart, And I remember in high school, I was 16 years old. In the states where I live, you can get a driver's license at 16, at least in California. I understand here it's 18, right? It should be reversed. You guys are much more mature than American teenagers. I'm just calling it. But it's 16 in my, in my, in my state. Some states you can drive at 15. Well, I got to drive. A guy who works for my dad had a Volvo Jetta car. This is a German car with a stick shift that you have to learn to put the clutch in and shift it to drive it. And I picked up Stephanie, who's my wife now, and in my town, we didn't even have a stoplight, it was so small. 
the only cool place we could go was Dairy Queen. So it's like, hey, do you want to go to Dairy Queen or Dairy Queen? She's like, I'll go to Dairy Queen. So I picked up Stephanie. She's 15. She's a year younger than I'm. I'm 16. We're driving and we pulled up to Dairy Queen, but we're on a decline where we had to park. Now, if you drive a stick shift, you know if you park on a decline to start it, you have to kick in the, the clutch quickly and shift it. Well, we park, go get our ice cream. I made her buy. I'm just kidding. I bought. I think. I don't even honestly remember. But we got ice cream together. Come back to the car, and it's parked like this on a decline, and there's another car right in front of it about 10 inches. I'm walking up to this going, Oh boy, this is not good. I just learned how to drive. I don't want to crash the car, especially in front of this girl I really like. So I open up the door, let her in, come to the side. I'm sweating it, but I'm playing it off like I'm cool. But here's how the Jetta works. If you go with the stick shift, you go over and up, it would go forward. First gear. To go in reverse, it's over, down, and up. Now, who on earth designed that? (laughs) I mean, that's ridiculous. So I pull the emergency brake off, intending to go backwards. I go over and I go up. Let go of the clutch, hit the gas. It goes so quickly forward that the front of the hood in the car locks on the hitch on the back of the car behind it and the wheels in front are spinning. I was, I was like, any cool points I had are gone. <laughs> well, I got the car taken down, left a note for the person. My dad had taught me, said, hey, if you damage another car, leave a note. The lady calls me up. She goes, thank you for leaving a note. You totally damaged my fender. We have to completely replace it. I can't remember. It's like six or $800. I was a high school kid. I didn't remotely have that. I remember sitting there going, oh my goodness. I have a debt and I don't have the means to pay this. I can't pay this back. And I remember saying, please, it's just a fender. Will you forgive what I owe you? This is where the servant is with the king, but with millions of dollars. He owes a debt he cannot pay back. It's impossible for him to pay back to the king. But remember, this story is not just about money. This story is about forgiveness. And the reality is, I think we live in a global culture, your country and mine, in which there's a lot of people walking around carrying burdens from people that they have been hurt by, unwilling to offer forgiveness. I know you all are familiar with Michael Jackson, one of the greatest pop stars of all time. Whether you like his music or think he's crazy, he is one of the greatest performers of all time, even in the 20th century. Michael Jackson, you know, when he was five years old, was part of a group called the Jackson Five. He was world famous at five. And yet, interestingly, in the year 2000, Michael Jackson was speaking at Oxford University. He had started a foundation called Save the Children Foundation. Michael Jackson was up there talking about his foundation and all of a sudden speaking at one of the most prestigious universities in the world, he stopped and he starts to stutter and he starts to cry. 
Here's the king of pop, used to being on stage, and he's crying. And he paused, and you know what he said? He said, I'll be honest with you. All I ever wanted in life was for my father to say, Michael, I love you. I'm proud of you. And he sat down. You want to understand Michael Jackson and the crazy stuff he did? Look at his broken relationship with his father. Michael then told a story when he was five years old, his very first practice for the Jackson Five. He's up on stage and he steps down because he needs to ask his dad a question. He goes, dad, dad, I have a question. His dad stops him. He goes, Michael, I am not your father. I am your manager. Get back on stage. You see, Michael Jackson was like so many people I see in the world today. He carried around hurts. He carried around a burden and it affected him every day of his life. I saw a study of retired people, 80s, 90s plus, who lived in a retirement home and they were asked, if you could live your life again, what would you do differently? Interesting question. One of the top responses was we would eat more ice cream. That's good advice. Second, we would go on more walks. Third, we would choose to forgive people who hurt us in life. And these people in retirement homes told stories about when they were in kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, comments parents made, ways teachers treated them, and burdens that they carried around for their entire life. Friends, here's one thing that I know. Pastor Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in Orange County near where I live, he said, hurt people hurt people. Write that down, remember that. Hurt people hurt people. You get on social media and there are angry people. You post anything. Why? Because people have been hurt. In my country, we've had an epidemic of shooters. A shooters at a school in Connecticut, at a church, at a school in Florida, a school in Texas. And every time this happens, I know instantly the shooter must be deeply hurt to do something like this. Because hurt people hurt people. This is the kind of burden that Jesus is talking about in this story. But then he goes on. Look in, again in chapter 18, verse 26. Chapter 18, verse 26, it says this. It says, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So here's the servant at the lowest spot of his life. I couldn't imagine. I love my wife. We've been married 18 years. I have three kids. I couldn't imagine the government coming to me or someone coming to me and saying, you're going in jail. Your kids are being sold into slavery. I would feel like an absolute failure. That's where the servant's at. He's failed as a husband. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a businessman. He's desperate in life. So all he can do is fall down at the king and plead with the king for mercy. That's all he can do. Verse 27, it says, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, let me ask you something. If you owed millions of dollars to somebody and somebody says, just like this, you're forgiven, 
what should your response be? What should your response be? It says, verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii is like a few bucks, like a Starbucks coffee. I actually call Starbucks five bucks because everything there costs five bucks. So he got forgiven millions and he owes somebody five bucks, the equivalent. It says, and seizing him, we're in verse 28, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. You see what's happening in this story? The servant owed the king a debt he could never pay back. He fell down his knees. He pleaded with the king. He said, please have pity on me. And the king has pity on him. And then the exact same servant who was just forgiven goes out, finds someone who owes him five bucks or 20 bucks, pocket change in comparison to the millions. He says, you owe me money, give it. The servant does the same thing. He says, please have pity on me. Now you'd think that this servant learned his lesson, right? But what happens? What happens? Verse 30, it says, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And friends, when I read this verse 35 in college, I knew I need to do some business with God and get my heart right. Verse 35 says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, did you hear those words? Do you hear how seriously Jesus takes forgiveness? Friends, there's a big difference between being sad that you get caught and being sad that when you do something wrong, right? Have you ever been caught and you're more upset that you got caught and in trouble than the wrong thing that you did? Honestly, how many of you have been there because I've been there? Let me see your hands. Okay, I thought so. That's human nature, right? What happened with this king, with this servant? He wasn't grateful and understanding the, the mercy that the king showed to him. He was just glad he wasn't in trouble anymore. He was just glad he wasn't in trouble. He didn't learn the lesson. You see, part of the story is there's two types of debts. There's a debt to the king, which is our debt to God, and then a debt to other people. And you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you understand the massive debt through which God has forgiven you, then it's like pocket change to forgive other people who have hurt you. That's the point of the story. I'm convinced more and more that as Christians, one of the reasons we're quick to judge, we don't always show grace, and we don't show mercy to people, is because we don't understand our own brokenness, the depth of our need for God, how much we have sinned against God and how much he has forgiven us, so we don't show grace to other people. 
Not long ago, I got invited to speak at a huge university in Southern California where I live. And I got a sub for my class because I was teaching high school. And I wrote an entirely new talk. And then the day before I left, the head of the chaplain called me. He goes, oh, Sean, I'm so sorry. We double booked someone else. We don't need you to speak tomorrow. You know what I said? I said, that's totally okay. I understand. No problem. And I hung up. Now, why was I so gracious? Is it because I'm such a gracious guy? That's not my point. You want to know what happened? A few weeks before that, I double booked myself in the state of Washington and Texas on the same day without realizing it. Now, in case you don't know the geography of my country, that is not going to happen in one day on the same night. So I had to call this entire event that planned around me and say, I totally blew it. I messed up. Please forgive me. I can't be there for your event. So because I had to call somebody else and realize that I had messed up, I had some grace when somebody else messed up. That's what this story is about. This story is about if we understand how much God has forgiven each one of us, then friends, it's like pocket change to forgive other people who have hurt us. You see, forgiveness in the Bible is not like you go to McDonald's and say, could I get a biggie size or an extra large fries for like 35 cents? It's not an option. Jesus said, let me read it again. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Friends, those are strong words. Those are strong words. Forgiveness is not optional. Jesus says, if you're on my team and you're a follower of me, you choose to be willing to forgive a brother, period. Game over, forgive him. Now, for some of you, that's hard to hear, isn't it? Because I'm guessing some of you are sitting here right now going, Sean, you don't understand what people have done to me. You don't understand the mistakes that I've made. You don't understand if you knew the mistakes I've made, you realize it wouldn't be so easy to just say forgive. Can I tell you something? If you're sitting here right now and you feel that way, my first thing is I hurt for you because that is not true. Jesus wipes the sin away and forgives us. And I'll tell you one place I've seen this is in the life of my own father. Some of you are here when he spoke a few months ago. We're coming back in January. I can't wait. I'm already looking forward to it to speak again here, January 2019. Well, my father grew up in a small town in Michigan, a state in like central north area of the country where I live. And my father, his dad was the town drunk. My dad never remembers a time where his father, my grandfather, was sober. He was always drunk. My dad's older sister committed suicide. My dad's older brother sued my grandpa for everything just out of spite and hatred the way that he treated him. Friends, my father was sexually abused for seven years by a man who looked, lived on their farm when my dad was six to 13 years old, sometimes multiple times 
a week. My dad said it wasn't until he was 13 years old and he was about to play football and working on the farm. He was strong enough. He took the man and slammed him against the wall and said, if you touch me again, I will kill you. And he meant it. Friends, my father grew up angry and hurt and bitter. In fact, about three years ago, we were sitting around as a family having a family night. And I have a sister, Heather, who was adopted, who's 10 years younger than I am. And my mom was sharing funny stories of growing up in Boston in the Northeast. And my sister goes, hey, Dad, give a good memory, a good story you remember when you were a kid. Awkward pause. My dad looks at us, he goes, kids, I don't have one. I don't know about you, but rarely does a day go by, let alone a week or a month or a year, that I don't have at least one good memory or experience. My dad was like, I don't have one for my childhood. My dad should be dead. He should be in prison. But I'll tell you something. God got a hold of my father's heart. He actually wrote that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He was trying to prove that Christianity was false. He was challenged by some kids who were Christians in college to consider the claims of Jesus. He thought it was a joke, traveled around the world, gathering the evidence to show Christianity's false. But then he became surprised by the evidence, got his attention when he understood the love of God. He became a believer. And one of the people my dad forgave was my grandfather, his dad. Keep in mind, my dad never saw his father sober growing up. He was drunk all the time. And by this time, my, mom, my grandmother had already passed away. And my dad was in a huge car accident where you're in like those light, full body casts. He was brought home to recover at home. And my grandfather was there and he came in to walk and talk to my dad. And he walked up to him and he paced next to the bed back and forth. My dad said it felt like forever. He finally walked up to my dad and he said, how can you forgive a father like me? My dad, like from this position where he could like turn his eyes, he goes, dad, six months, a year ago, I hated your guts and I wanted you to die. But Jesus Christ has come into my life and transformed me from the inside out, giving me the capacity to love and forgive you. Dad, I forgive you. Dad, I love you. And his dad walked out of the room. 45 minutes later, my grandfather, who my dad had never seen sober, walks up to my dad and says, son, if God can do in, your, in my life what he's done in yours, then I want to give him a chance. And my dad led his father to Christ in a full body cast. And my grandfather never had another sip of alcohol for the rest of his life. You know who else my dad forgave? A man by the name of Wayne Bailey. Wayne Bailey is a man who sexually abused my dad for six years, seven years. My dad became a Christian, went to find where he was living in a trailer park, knocked on his door. The man opened up the door. He said, Wayne, what you did to me was wrong. It was evil. So I want you to know something. I've become a Christian and I am offering you forgiveness for what you've done. And so does God. 
And then my dad walked away. And then he said, if I ever hear of touch here, of you touching another kid, I will come after you and be your worst living nightmare. <laughs> Not outside of the law, but wanted to let him know that was unacceptable. You know what he did? He forgave him. And my dad told me something I'll never forget. He said, son, I thank God for my alcoholic father. Now, some of you, if you have trouble with your parents or you've made mistakes or you have hurts, you're thinking, how could you possibly be thankful for an alcoholic father? You know what my dad said? He said, God, use that in my life to shape me, to form me, to give me a passion for this generation and to change my heart. God, we, friends, we worship a God who can redeem anything, anything. And that's what the story is about. That's what the story about. Let me tell you what forgiveness is not in case it's not clear. Forgiveness is not a feeling. You realize that, right? If you're sitting here right now going, gosh, the Bible, these stories, there's someone I need to forgive. I'm going to wait until I feel like it. You will never forgive that person. The world we live in increasingly says, if you feel it, it must be true for you. It must be right. Friends, if you live your life on your feelings, you will wreck your life and destroy your relationships. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice, even if you don't feel like it. Forgiveness is a choice. But what did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we choose to forgive people, then God begins often to change and soften our hearts. Please don't think forgiveness is a feeling. If you're waiting to feel like forgiving someone, you're going to be waiting a long time. Second, forgiveness is not forgetting. People say, oh, forgive and forget. That's a horrible statement. I think we should take it out of the English lexicon. You might be thinking, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say in the Old Testament, God will remember our sins no more? Look, God doesn't forget our sins. He's omniscient. He knows everything, past, present, future. When the Bible says God remembers our sins no more, it means God will not hold these sins against us. I think we remember the hurt that we have, so we won't repeat those same sins in the future. Forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. That's not what forgiveness is. Third, Forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is not saying, oh, it wasn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. Hey, you'll do better next time. That's not forgiveness. And fourth, forgiveness is not a one-time choice. Yes, we choose to forgive, but oftentimes we have to choose and keep choosing, which is why Jesus said forgive 70 times seven. What is forgiveness? In his book, Free of Charge, Virslav Volf said, forgiveness is one naming the wrong. To forgive somebody to say, I recognize that action. Second, condemn it as wrong. Name it, condemn it. Third, give someone the gift of not counting it against them. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is giving somebody the gift of removing the burden that they're carrying around. That's what it means to forgive somebody. Desmond Tutu, one of the leaders for reconciliation in South Africa, he wrote a book called No Future Without Forgiveness. And he wrote about three US soldiers who were talking with each other at the Vietnam veteran wall in DC. 
One of the students, one of the soldiers said, have you forgiven those who held you prisoner of war? The second soldier said, I will never forgive them. And then a third soldier said, then it is certain they still have you in prison, don't they? You realize when we don't forgive somebody, guess what? It's you and me who are imprisoned. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's actually freeing to forgive other people. It's freeing. It brings freedom in life to forgive others. But what I found is sometimes the hardest person to really experience forgiveness is yourself, isn't it? Sometimes you're willing to give forgiveness to other people. But when it comes to yourself, sometimes it's harder. This week, we have a podcast at Biola that I co-lead, and we had a lady on. Her name's Victoria. And she had an abortion. Her boyfriend talked her into it. And she said the moment she had an abortion, she grieved and knew it was wrong. She couldn't tell anybody. She feared Christians would judge her and treat her differently. She was in the church for years, on the worship band, on stage, having told nobody this. Women would come to her who had had abortions, experience freedom and releasing, and she was getting angry at God, seeing all these people get freedom, but she couldn't experience freedom herself. See, sometimes it's experiencing freedom ourselves that is the hardest. In my class, I still teach high school part-time. I tell my students, I say, look, we can talk about anything in class as long as you really want to know truth and we bring it to scripture. So one time in class, the topic of pornography came up and we were talking about how it comes up on the internet, how it affects the brains and relationships and culture. And I saw the student sit in the back, great athlete, great kid, great family. And I could tell he was getting bothered by this. So when it was done, it was lunchtime. He came up to me, said, Dr. McDowell, can we talk? I was like, no, it's my lunchtime. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that to him. I said, sure, step into my office, which was actually a desk in the middle of my classroom. We sat down and said, hey, what's going on? And keep in mind, this was a senior student, varsity athlete, stud, you know, on all those levels. He puts his head down before he says anything and he just starts to cry intensely. So I went and got him in tissue. I came back. I said, hey, what's going on? He goes, Dr. McDowell, I got to tell you something. He goes, for the last six months, I go into my room at night, close the door. My parents think I'm going to sleep. On my phone, my tablet, my computer, I look up pornography and I look at it for hours and hours and hours. He said, Dr. McDowell, I can't stop. What do I do? I said, first off, thank you for telling me and opening up. You're on the right step. The first step is just to tell somebody. I said, second, I have seen people from the most intense, just addiction experience healing. If you are willing to trust God and believe God can heal you and bring you from this. Do you believe that? He said, yes. I said, but let me ask you a question. How does this affect you? And he gave him the answer I hear from every young person I've asked that question. He said, first off, I feel guilty all the time. He said, but second, he said, I can't look at a woman the same. 
He said, once I started looking at pornography, every time I look at a woman, I start undressing her in my mind. Friends, if you think you can look at pornography and still be holy and it doesn't affect you, you are only fooling one person and it's yourself. But I don't raise this question to beat up on you and make you feel guilty. If you look at this or or have looked at this, I want you to experience the freedom that comes from knowing that God forgives you and God loves you and God restores you. Don't give Satan this foothold in your life. Friends, God loves you. God loves you. God forgives you. And he wants you to experience his best. And the lies from Satan are, if you tell anybody, they'll look at you differently. If you tell anybody, people will tell on you. They won't trust you. Friends, these are lies. These are lies. It's when we confess our sins that he's faithful and just and forgives us. You know why forgiveness is so important? Because in the world we live in, it's about revenge. It's about getting equal. It's about getting yours, isn't it? That's what the world is about. But when Christians actually choose to forgive each other and forgive other people, our world pays attention. There was a story in my country in 2006, about 12 years ago, of a man who was 35 years old. And he went into an Amish schoolhouse. Some of you might remember this. It was in a town called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania in the Northeast, an Amish community. And he went into the small schoolhouse, kicked 15 boys outside, took 11 girls, age, I think about uh, eight or 10, maybe 11 to 15, and he killed them execution style. It was a tragedy. And our country mourned the loss of these kids for months and months. His wife was interviewed. He took his own life. And you know what she said? She said he was acting out on pain and hurt that had caused to him two decades earlier. (laughs) He was hurt, carried that burden around, never experienced freedom. So in turn, he hurt other people. But this wasn't the story. The story that shook my country was that the Amish people, because they believe that God is sovereign and they believe God is good, even in tragedies like this, chose to forgive that man. In fact, a fund was sent up to give money to the Amish. They took half of it and gave it to the surviving widow and the three kids. Can you imagine that? At the funeral, over half of them were Amish. And describes how the Amish man held the widow and mourned with her in her loss. This was the cover of U.S. News and World Report. Everybody was shocked. They said, look how evil this is. Look how terrible this is. How can they forgive this? And the Amish people said, we believe God is good. We believe God is in control. And it was their willingness to forgive that caught the world's attention. Friends, as Christians, we are called to be holy. We are called to love. But we are called to forgive people. 
because we follow a God who has forgiven every single one of us an incredible amount of debt and burden. And he loves us. And when we understand that, it gives us the capacity to forgive other people so they can have a taste of what it means that God forgives them. One of the most humbling thoughts I had in my life was when I realized how deeply I am responsible for the hurts of other people. You realize that? We can talk about how other people have hurt us, but the reality is every single one of us in here have said things and done things that has hurt other people. I used to think it was everybody else's problem. When it hit me, I realized, oh my goodness, I have failed people, I have sinned. That's when I cried out for God's forgiveness. And he began to change me from the inside out. So when I got to college, I read this passage that we just looked at together for the last few moments. And I got to verse 35 and it says, so will my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I remember reading that going, oh my goodness, I don't have a choice but to offer forgiveness to that man who hurt me. So I sat down and wrote about a three to four page single spaced handwritten letter. Not an email, not a text, not a Facebook post. I wrote a three to four page letter to this man, thanking him for all the ways he had encouraged me in life, and then saying, what you did to me was wrong, but I want you to know I forgive you. Mailed it to him, and I heard nothing back. I heard nothing back. And then months later, we were up in a town where we saw him. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to ask him. So I said, hey, did you get that letter? He goes, yeah, it was great, thanks. And I'm sitting there going, that's it? That's it? Come on, man, I wrote a letter. I'm pouring out my heart. And then about three or four years after that, finally, we were back up in that town. I saw him, and it was the strangest thing. It was as if God had lifted that anger and that bitterness that was there, and I could finally see him and care for him for who he was. Do you know why the Bible says to pray for your enemies? It's not just for your enemies. It's for you, and it's for me. If you sit there and pray for your enemies, the people that have hurt you, what happens? It starts to soften your heart and you learn to love people in a way that you couldn't before. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to respond. Here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to ask you one of two things. If there's somebody that you know you need to go forgive I'm going to have you stand up. Or second, if somebody has been asking for forgiveness and you haven't been willing to grant it, I'm going to ask you to stand. In just a minute, I see that some of you are standing now. This is great. Here's why. In fact, stand, if, go ahead and stand up if this is you. If there's somebody in your life, you know, man, I've been listening to this. I need to go ask this person to forgive me or there's somebody else in your life, you know that you need to be willing to forgive. Stand up. Now, if you don't stand, nobody's judging you. I don't want anybody to stand because you feel peer pressure to stand. That is not the point. But if you're sitting there in your life and you think of a parent, you think of a friend, maybe it's yourself, maybe a teammate, maybe a coworker, 
and you realize, man, these words pierced my soul. I need to ask for forgiveness and I want to be set free like Christ set free. You want to be set free like my father was to even be able to thank God for an alcoholic father. Friends, I look out here and I am blown away at how many of you have the courage to stand up. I'm encouraged and I'm blessed by this. And I'm going to ask you to do something. If you are near somebody who's standing and a guy with a guy, girl with a girl, I want you to stand next to this person and let's pray together that God gives us the strength and the courage to go forgive these people and experience our holiness. Stand up right now where you're at. Go near. If there's somebody near you that's a friend, again, a guy with a guy, a girl with a girl, go put your arm around them, go stand by them, tell them that you love them, that you're standing with this person and you're going to be with them to experience God's healing and forgiveness. Go stand by them right now. And I'm going to ask you to do something, shh, because I almost have to wrap up. I'm going to ask you, if you stood up, will you tell at least one person why you stood? Will you tell at least one person? Because I know if you're standing here right now thinking, I got to forgive that person, but don't tell anybody. All the temptations of business will come. You'll walk out that door and find an excuse not to do it, because that's my nature, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, if you stood, to tell one person, maybe it's big, maybe it's small, and just getting it off your chest is the first step to know that God is forgiving you so you can live in the holiness that he wants you to live in. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for these students that I look out and see. Their energy, their passion, their clear desire to follow after you. I pray that you just bless them in ways that would just blow their socks off, so to speak. That if there's people sitting here right now knowing they need to forgive somebody, but still fighting if they have the courage to say it, God, give them calmness, give them confidence, give them your peace to experience the forgiveness that you want them to experience. God, I pray that your arms of love and compassion and healing will descend upon every young person here and you will restore them and make them into the person you want to be so they can make a difference in this world for you. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for the chance to share.